Hello and welcome to the January 2020 episode of the History Twins podcast. I'm Aiden Kaplan. And I'm Tristan Kaplan. Today we are interviewing Professor Mark Koyama of George Mason University. Koyama has written extensively on Jewish persecutions in the Middle Ages, the Industrial Revolution, and witchcraft trials in early modern Europe. His recent book with Cambridge University Press, co-authored with Professor Noel D. Johnson, also of George Mason University, Persecution and Religious Toleration, The Long Road to Religious Freedom, investigates the rise and fall of religious persecution, culminating in the emergence of modern liberal states in Western Europe. Professor Koyama will begin with Persecution and Religious Toleration, and then proceed on to some of your journal articles. Thanks for having me, Aiden Oh, very pleased to have you on. Why did rulers of the early medieval period increasingly rely on religion as a means of legitimizing their rule compared to their largely secular Roman predecessors prior to the Constantinian shift? That's a good question. So just a kind of uh, background, I, I would say that all rulers in, in, in the pre-modern world, particularly in the ancient world, use religion as a source of powerful kind of legitimacy. So if you think about kind of the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Persians, they're all looking for some kind of divine religious leg- legitimation. Um, the Romans do as well. So Roman kind of consuls and, and, and senators are members of various priesthoods. And so Roman religion is about uh, the city of Rome. Um, it's about... Uh, but over the late Republic and early Imperial period, I would say that the role of religion becomes somewhat less important. So if you read like Polybius, who's the Greek historian of, of the rise of, of the early Republic, Polybius actually says the Romans are more religious than, say, say contemporary Greeks. But um, certainly by the early Empire, you get the sense from reading Roman authors that for the elite, religion isn't taken that seriously. It's more for the masses. And so religion is maybe less important as a form of legitimation than some other forms, like the Senate. Or, uh, uh, the, but, but religion still matters. And over the Roman, period, the Roman imperial period, um, worshipping or offering divine rights to the emperor does become more important. So um, emperors are deified. Over time, that cult of the emperor becomes more important. And actually, the, the persecution of Christians particularly in the third century, is often centered around the fact they're not willing to worship the emperor. So then Constantine comes along after a period of civil war and strife and chaos, and he wants a religion which is going to tie the Roman Empire together. And there's good evidence that he can kind of trial runs uh, various other kind of cults before settling on on Christianity as a as a uh, as, a, as he thinks one god means you can unify everyone around one one god. And, and that's that's probably why you get that. That's at least one explanation, a deep kind of structural explanation, why it was always going to be possible, if not likely, for the Romans to choose a monotheistic religion at that point in their history. And then you get the Middle Ages, um, and as rulers like Charlemagne are trying to rebuild something like cl- close to imperial Roman authority, are trying to rebuild something like the Western Empire, though unsuccessfully. They're going to look around for ways to legitimize that that mission. And the most powerful, dominant um, kind of ideological force in these societies is, is religion. You note that between the fall of Rome and the year 1028, a time span of roughly 550 years, there were no heresy trials in Western Europe, a phenomenon which you attribute to the conditional toleration equilibrium. Could you explain the idea of the conditional toleration equilibrium and why it prevented such trials? Yeah, so that's a, a key concept in, in one of Noel's book, which is that, and this, so, so we use this term conditional toleration to distinguish modern modern notions of religious freedom. So the idea that you know it's perfectly fine and good for different people in society to worship whatever whatever they want to, or however they want to, so long as it doesn't interfere with the rights of other people. That's a notion that we at least most of us in modern liberal society think of as, as good. So that's religious freedom. From another idea, which is um, actually a much older idea of toleration, and, and we emphasize this toleration is always conditional, hence the term conditional toleration, where you would permit other people to worship religions that you might strongly disapprove of because you had to, or under certain conditions. So the, 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 the treatment of... Um, Different, uh, of saying Jews in, in, in the early Middle Ages or the throughout the Middle Ages and the early modern period exemplifies this. So, from the point of view of most Christians, like it's bad 
the the Jewish religion is bad. It's not it's not the right religion. The Jews have all these uh, flaws and sins to their eyes, but at the same time, they they recognise that they have a right to exist as Jews and not to be forcibly converted. So they're, they're tolerated, but they're not allowed to do many things. They're not allowed to try and convert people. They're not allowed to proselytise. They're not allowed to marry with Christians. They're also not allowed to hire Christians. So there are a lot of conditions bounding in that toleration. Another good example would be the Muslim world. So the Muslim world. Until you know, even until today, in some countries, but until very recently, people, other people of a book are explicitly tolerated. So the Quran says that Jews and Christians should not be persecuted. But at the same time, the status of Jews and Christians is much lower than that of Muslims. They can't be in the government. They can't be lawyers. Often they can't be in the army. Um, they have to wear special clothing. Again, they can't. Uh, intermarry if they intermarry well if they intermarry with Muslims it's it's through, if they have to convert or the children have to be brought up as Muslims so the status of uh, of not of non-Muslims in in traditional Muslim countries is is that of conditional toleration now applying this to the early Middle Ages what we're saying is we're saying look there's no there's some there there's some episodes of extreme violence against kind of pagans and under Charlemagne, but in general, there's no active religious persecution for most of the early Middle Ages. There are no uh, major witchcraft trials. There are no major heresy trials. There's not. Um, there's no Inquisition. People, you know, uh, people don't have. Uh, there's no apparatus to go around uh, hunting people out for what they believe. So in that sense, there's no persecution, hence you might say there's toleration. But that toleration is always conditional. Along, uh, you know, it's, it's not the case that there's a commitment to religious freedom or uh, other liberal values in the Middle Ages. That, that's kind of what we're, we're saying. And, and I, I think it's hard to, hard, to, hard to dispute that when you look at the, um, you know, what's going on with various minority groups or conflicts between different religions in that in that long stretch of history between the end of the Roman Empire and the early well, the 11th century. How does your thesis account for the large-scale religious persecutions in the Byzantine Empire concurrent during this time period we just mentioned? Um, so, you, you know, we, we, what we were saying was specific to um, Western Europe. Byzantine Empire it, it remains a much higher capacity state by early modern standards for for um, for long stretches, at least until like the ninth century. So, whereas, so, so, yeah, it's a good question because it allows me to kind of um, uh, add more meat to a bone, uh, so to speak. So, one reason why there's only there's conditional toleration in the early Middle Ages in Western Europe, and there's no active religious persecution, is that the state is extremely weak or absent in Western Europe, and so there's and even if a bishop or religious authority, even if they wanted to use kind of more coercive means against these peasants in the countryside who don't really understand anything about Christian doctrine and they're basically worshipping pagan gods or doing other things that the church might disapprove of, even if they want to use the state to coerce them, the state isn't able to do it. Like, that doesn't have, it doesn't have the capability to do it. So that's partly why you get conditional toleration. You get Not because people are particularly tolerant or people believe in liberalism or they've, they've digested these ideas of religious freedom. No, they, they, they haven't. But at the same time, they don't, we, we, don't, we, we don't have a state apparatus which will be capable of, 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 of co-persecuting people. Byzantine Empire is slightly different because the state does remain fairly strong and centralised. I'd have to ask you guys about how much religious persecution you think there was in the Byzantine Empire, because my understanding is there's quite a lot of things between, a lot of controversies between like the monophysites and, and, and others over you know, the nature of divinity. So there's a lot of religious conflict. In this. I know Jews are treated quite badly uh, in the Byzantine Empire, especially their condition gets worse. And I know Justinian closes down uh, the school of Athens because he thinks it's like a, uh, a centre of paganism. But I'm not sure if they were really committing large-scale kind of executions of the kind you see in Europe after, say, 1400 or 1500. That's probably fair. Uh, I specifically had in mind the uh, periods of iconoclasm in the 8th century, which I think were generally accompanied by uh, a, lot, a good deal of violence. Yeah, I, yeah so that's a, that's a great example. One, one we don't actually... Our analysis could be extended more to the Byzantine Empire. We don't, don't really do that. So the iconoclastic a controversy must have been accompanied by a lot of violence. I think there it's really a battle for again, it's a bit like um it's a bit like the Constantinian fourth century period. They're looking 
Orthodox Christianity was a mainstay. So it was it was a major force legitimizing a Byzantine state, particularly after Justinian. And the the problem facing the Byzantines in that period is they've they've had like a century of military defeats against the Muslims. That calls into question, like, are we doing things right? Um, do we have God on our side if we're continuously losing battles to to the Muslims? And at first, they don't really understand like what the Muslim, what, you know, what what's distinctive about Islam, but by the eighth century, it's clear that one of the things that Islam is very strong about is is not having devo- not having images of of, of anything religious. Um, so it's a, that, that's partly why we're like, if we can purge our religion of these images, then maybe we can regain kind of divine support. Um, but of course, they, they decide in the end they decide not to do that. I mean, the, the iconoclastic movement fails. Yeah, well, you can have. High, so-called high middle ages so like think about it after 1100 is you have there's several things going on actually leading to this increase in religious persecution but undoubtedly including i think there's there's um the economic developments actually causing kind of more religious change and the fact that you have more literate people means that you have the possibility to write things down and that makes people more aware of kind of differences and disagreements but the central thing is you have the rise of this of like you could call it the rise of a state uh, after 1100 so you you the rise of states which have bureaucracies they have lawyers they have kind of secular administrations and they they want to govern their people more more closely and to do so they, they enlist the church um and we now have a we have the capacity and capabilities to um, to like police beliefs in a way they didn't have previously. Absolutely. So in the broad scheme of things, uh, your book argues that states began to persecute as state capacity increased, correct? Yeah. So what you have in the high, so-called high middle ages, so like think about it after 1100, is you have there's several things going on actually leading to this increase in religious persecution, but undoubtedly, including I think there's, there's um, the economic developments actually causing kind of more religious change, and the fact that you have more literate people means that you have the possibility to write things down, and that makes people more aware of kind of differences and disagreements. But the central thing is you have the rise of this of like you could call it the rise of a state uh, after 1100. So you you've uh, Rise of states which have bureaucracies, they have lawyers, they have kind of secular administrations, and they they want to govern their people more more closely. And to do so, they, they enlist the church, um, and they now have a they have the capacity and capabilities to um, to like police beliefs in a way they didn't have previously. So why did Western European states lack the capacity to silence Protestant reformers, whereas they had been quite successful at persecuting heretics in the past? Yeah, so that's also a great question. And then just to, to give you give a background, they, um, there are a lot of these reform movements in medieval Christianity, um, some of which are incorporated into the church, others of which are not, like, for example, the Waldensians. Some are more anti-church than others. So the, the Cathars are probably more anti, anti-church than, than other movements. Other movements are just like trying to foster internal reform within the church. What makes... So, so there's been a bunch of, kind of proto-Protestant movements. The, the most notable ones, actually, are in the 14th century and 15th century. The, the, Lomb- uh, sorry, the Lollards in England and the Hussarites in, in the Czech Republic. And they're both locally somewhat successful for, for some decades. And they, they managed to attract the support of some secular elites Partly for the same reasons that Protestants will will do so. The Lollards, basically, John Wycliffe, who's a professor at Oxford, he basically says to the to the English elite, political elite, if you broke if you broke from Rome, then you could you could get loads of you could basically seize the wealth of the church. So you could all this money is going to Rome, uh, but we could like, seize it for, for uh, and, and focus it within England. So it's like a proto nationalist kind of appeal. Uh, but it's but the Lollard. Um, Movement is is defeated and and kind of crushed in the fifteenth century, and then in the in, in the in the in Bohemia, what's what's now the Czech Republic, the Hussites are also, I think, a kind of proto nationalist religious movement. They want to you know uh, have the Bible in a vernacular, those types of things, and but they're, but they're defeated. But I think the 
they could have been successful almost maybe, but but but, but they're defeated. Um, then then Martin Luther in fifteen seventeen begins what we in retrospect call the Protestant Reformation. Uh, one key difference between him and the Hussites and, and Wycliffe is the printing press. That's this, so. This is kind of um, this is a long-standing thesis in in the historical historical literature, and it's received some more recent uh, support by by Jared Rubin. Uh, in, a, in a paper in a review of economics and statistics and, and his more recent book, that the, the Reformation um, spreads because the printing press is really, really powerful in disseminating Luther's kind of critique, particularly because he's printing in, in, the, in the vernacular and because he's printing these pamphlets, which are very cheap and lots of people can read, read them. Literacy is higher after 1500 than it had been earlier. And so there's a lay audience for this, these types of critiques. That would be that's one set of reasons. I would also add some other reasons, which are more idiosyncratic. So you could easily imagine um, Luther being stopped by had Charles V decided to just uh, seize him before he gets to Diet of Worms and have him <laughs> executed. That that might have stopped might have stopped the Reformation. Uh, similarly. There's a hypothesis which is um, uh, by Murat Ergen, who's at the University of Colorado, and uh, he, he wrote this paper about 15 years ago, 10 years ago in the QJE, whereby the, the Ottoman Empire is, is threatening to invade Europe, particularly invade Central Europe, threatening the Habsburg Empire at several points in the 1520s, 1530s, 1540s. And so his argument is, is um, Suleiman the Magnificent, who's the Ottoman Sultan, makes possible the Protestant Reformation because he's distracting um, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. And at, at various crucial points, he, he attacks the Habsburgs and Charles V have, has to respond. And that prevents him from devoting all his resources to repressing the independent Protestant princes in, in the Holy Roman Empire. So that's another hypothesis whereby you can imagine the Protestant Reformation not taking place, at least in that form, in the early 16th century. Uh, nevertheless, you can make the argument that even without Luther or without the printing press, or even if the uh, Holy Roman Empire had been less kind of uh, distracted, you could argue that something like the Protestant Reformation might have been in the works due to long-run kind of structural factors, such as the rise of national uh, national kind of ideas, nationalist ideas in Northern Europe and uh, the shift in economic power from Southern Europe to Northern Europe, that might have prompted something like the Reformation, but the, the event itself seems to be contingent on the factors I just listed. As states began to persecute people and realized that it was not working, they increasingly fell back on the conditional toleration equilibrium uh, in the Peace of Augsburg of 1555, for example. Why was this fallback on the conditional toleration equilibrium ultimately unsuccessful in maintaining the importance of religion to political legitimation? Yeah, so that's a great question. The, 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 the European kind of rulers after, after the Reformation, so they want religious homogeneity. So religious homogeneity is seen as a crucial precondition for political stability. That's the case with Henry VIII, the case of Elizabeth I. I think it's the case with, with, with uh, um, you know, various monarchs of France or of Spain. So they, they see religious fragmentation and, and fracture as, a, as an abiding problem, like a, you know, a, a source of, a source, it's going to be a source of civil war and conflict, they feel. So they need to, they need to find a way to resolve that. And so there are various routes you could go down. One is repression. So the Spanish do this, and they're then successful. You, you, you have a, a pre an inquisition or a, 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 um, an apparatus of, of repression, and you use coercion. And it's justified to use coercion because you're going to bring about, you're going to heal the state, you're going to bring about religious homogeneity, and you're going to that's going to make your your, your state much stronger, your society more cohesive into the future. If you, but if you can't use repression, if it's too costly then you're going to have to accommodate religious difference. But most of these rulers think they're doing so temporarily. So the Peace of Augsburg, uh, the Edict of Nantes in France, and the, the religious settlement of England, they're normally seen as temporary stopgaps, whereby there's going to be some kind of religious 
some coming together whereby these religious differences are ironed out. So, uh, for example, even the, the Catholic Church in the 16th century, they spend about 20 years preparing for the Council of Trent, which is intended as a council where they go, like, take, take into account the criticisms raised by the Protestants and maybe like, make some reforms. And they do some reforms, but of course the reforms they do are nowhere close to being enough which would satisfy the Protestants by the time you get to the Council of Trent. But, the, but there's a long-standing hope until about... So even Leibniz, who's writing at the end of the 17th century, hopes that there's going to be a, count, a European-wide council whereby religious differences will be accommodated. So, so, religious, so these rulers are basically saying we can have a, a, a toleration, something like the Peace of Augsburg, Felix of Nantes, in order to stop this violence, in order to bring peace. But they don't, they're not committing, they don't believe that in the long run, Europe will remain divided religiously. They think it will go all Protestant or Catholic. Um, so it's a temporary peace, and, and over time, these, these temporary peaces proved somewhat non-stable. So the peace of Augsburg, it brings the Holy Roman Empire about 60 years of peace, but then the Thirty Years' War rends open that initial toleration equilibrium again. The Edict of Nantes in France brings about a century of uh, of peace before it's revoked by um, Louis XIV. Similarly, in England, Elizabeth I um, imposes a religious settlement, but that religious settlement doesn't last. And in the Civil War, it, all these issues become uh, open again, and you have persecution of kind of Quakers and other kind of distant Protestant Protestant sects, and you have a continued continued repression of Catholics by the English state. So conditional toleration, we can't return once the genie is out of a bottle, they cannot they can't put it back in a bottle and return to this medieval equilibrium. I think partly because there are just too many uh, uh, there are too many dissenters. In England you have you know kind of probably one in five people not being members of the Church of England. So that's that's too large a minority to to encompass within a con- the conditional toleration equilibrium. Why did religious persecution appreciably decrease in 18th century France and England, despite such events as the revocation of the Edict of Nantes, the anti-Catholic hysteria of the Glorious Revolution, and Monmouth Rebellion, etc.? The lingering unpopularity of religious outgroups in these countries would still seem to confer a decent incentive for persecution on political authorities. Yeah, so that's that's a great question, and I think the a conventional view, but a more traditional view, attributes this this um, decline in religious kind of persecution to the, the Enlightenment. Um, and I, I think that we're, while we're not disputing that, we're kind of looking at the incentives facing rulers for like why why there was some religious violence, as you said, but there was continuing religious repression. But why why was it di- distinctly declining through the 18th century? Um, and I think the the key factors are the decline in the importance of religion for the political political legitimation and the increase in the, the capacity of European states to kind of govern in a way which meant they were less reliant on religious authorities and more able to kind of implement um, to, to, to provide kind of some level of very basic public goods, let's say. So let's take these kind of one by one, perhaps. The so the 16th century, early 17th century rulers, they still think they still want religion to be. They still see religion as crucial to legitimizing their authority. That's still key to them. But it's become more problematic because of the Reformation, because their fragment, because their societies are religiously fragmented. But they're still continuing to use religion as the source of source of, source of political legitimacy. If you look at both England and France, but I'll take England first. It's a clear decline in the political importance of religion after after the English Civil War, and it's hard to say which is a conscious decision. It's not like we have uh, you know writings by political leaders saying we're going to use religion less, but there's a clear decline in the importance of the Archbishop of Canterbury. The, the the Church of England is becoming less politically influential. If you think about in the early 17th century. Monarchs are very concerned to to have a particular Bible, so King, the King James Bible is a standard Bible in English, but a standard prayer book. The English Civil War begins in part because of Charles I is trying to impose a standard prayer book on both England and Scotland, and that offends the Presbyterians in Scotland. So 
that the Stuarts in the first part of the 17th century are really trying to force one version of the Church of England on their on on a relatively religiously fractured country, and that that clearly fails. So by the second part of the 17th century. I think Charles II is trying to do much less of this, even though there's continued persecution of religious minorities. But certainly, after the failure of James II's reign, so after the Glorious Revolution of 1688, you have Protestant rulers now, William and Mary, on the throne. They're very keen to de-emphasize religion. So they want to de-emphasize religious repression of Catholics. They want to want to stop the persecution of dissenting Protestants. And they're not totally successful, so repression of Catholics continues, but the the, the emphasis from the uh, political elite is to diminish it. Uh, and I think this, I think they're responding to these incentives about what what what's going to work, and and they they have alternative means of religious of, of political legitimacy. So Britain in this period, England and Britain is becoming increasingly successful, building a colonial empire. It's becoming increasingly economically prosperous, and the the rhetoric of government can start emphasizing those things as opposed to religion. Um, in France, the, the ideology of the absolutist monarchy does comes to play somewhere on replacing the, 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 the traditional world of religion. So it's religion is so important. Louis XIV is a very devout Catholic, but he's building up an alternative notion of a of a monarchy which is you know the sun king he he has this great palace of versailles it, he, it's, he legitimizes himself because he's a patron of the arts patron of architecture of culture so the the, the absolute monarchy doesn't need kind of the catholic church as much and so you see this with the, the french over time become much less beholden to Rome, may pursue their own policy. So even though Louis XIV is a devout Catholic, when there's some interest in fighting the Ottomans and having a, a so-called crusade against the Ottoman Empire to save Vienna, uh, you know, Louis XIV says basically, you know, the age of crusades has passed. And he makes, makes an alliance with the Ottoman Turks, who are, who are the gates of Vienna at the time. So I think both England and France, though they go through different paths, they're both Building up states which don't need religion as much, and and, and as as a, as a as a result, they can tolerate religious minorities much more. Uh, the other example I've, I haven't mentioned here, but I can touch on briefly, is the treatment of of Jews. Um, so Jews have been expelled from England for many hundreds of years, but when they're invited back in the mid 17th century, it's initially controversial because the Jews are not Christian, um, but over time it becomes something which isn't a, a really objectionable to the English population or the English elite. France, the situation is somewhat similar as well. Jews are given rights to settle in the early 17th century and then basically become acknowledged as citizens by the early 18th century. Which is not to say they're not discriminated against or don't face legislation which needs them for many jobs or for many occupations. But they're increasingly able to live their own lives without interference from the state. Moving on to witchcraft, you make the argument that increasing state capacity greatly helped to curb witch trials in early modern Europe. You note that central government authority, as represented by higher-level courts, royal officials, etc., was typically seen as a moderating influence at the time. So to get at the heart of the subject, why was the central government a moderating influence? One well, I to understand is that um, these beliefs are extre were extremely common throughout of, as far as we know, all of all of your, all of human history, all of European history, and pre-modern history. So that people believed in curses, in uh, spirits, in in kind of a, a, not all the paraphernalia of of what became to be the modern kind of European nations of witchcraft. But many of these beliefs were common throughout history. Uh, people were, had spiritual powers; they could heal, they could make spells, but. It didn't give rise to large-scale witch hunts until the late Middle Ages. And so the forces giving rise to these witch hunts, according to historians like uh, R.I. Moore, were, was actually quite similar to the forces giving rise to repression of, of heretics. It was partly an increase in state capacity, partly um, a need to demonize an outsider. So this is a, in order to show up your religious legitimacy, you target outside groups. In particular... Um, what what drove the 
very intense witch hunts which emerge in the 15th and 16th century in Europe is a particular belief, which is that the not only do people practice witchcraft, do spells, contact spirits, and so on, but but it's something called um, basically basically demonology, the idea that there's a conspiracy, a satanic conspiracy, the witch is a part of, and they're in effect making deals with the devil. And go, they have covens, which are almost underground conspiracies. So hundreds of witches are gathering at covens to cast spells and even to interfere with, like, to, to affect the weather or to interfere with political acts. So this is almost a conspiracy theory. And European elites became convinced to varying degrees that this conspiracy was real, in part because the way the judicial system uh, revealed this information, people would be put to torture and under torture they were often tortured until they would confess to the specific belief that they were part of a, a coven and they met kind of through mysterious or magical ways and they conspired against against the public good. Um, so if you believe so so this is why they're witches or people believe in witches in the early Middle Ages, they believe in witches in, in other societies, but we don't necessarily kill witches in the thousands. But this is why witches are put on trial and killed in the thousands, often through kind of extrajudicial means in uh, late medieval and early modern Europe, because people fear a conspiracy of witches, which is hidden and can only be detected if you use kind of torture. Because there's no, there's no, there's no material evidence of this conspiracy, right? You, you can only prove it by getting someone to confess to it. So you need to extract that confession often by torture. So the the key, so that's what's driving this this spike in witch hunch trials. The key thing, though, is the and and this is uh, the argument for this is made by kind of demonologists, guy lawyers, secular lawyers generally, although sometimes uh, in, in some cases they were inquisitors, um, but often secular lawyers who studied this and made this argument that you have to use torture and that you have to uncover this conspiracy. The problem about this is it conflicted with Roman law, whereby uh, torture was only supposed to be used under special circumstances, and it was only supposed to be used if you had uh, other confirming evidence. So if if a witness said that they saw you poisoning a, 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 a pot of food, right, then, if, and that witness is a reliable person, say an adult, and they, they can verify you know, what clothes you're wearing, and if a, a credible witness identifies you, then, then a court would be legitimate in using torture to extract a confession from you. But in the absence of such a witness, they would not be. But the demonologists argue that you can lower legal standards in order to, to, um, to investigate witchcraft trials. So that gives rise to very widespread witchcraft trials, which in some sense self-reinforcing. Because if I... If, if I um, if I uncover an evidence of conspiracy, and that conspiracy is publicized, then people in a neighboring town, they're going to say, well, if there's conspiracy in that town, maybe in our town, there's also some kind of, there's some witches. So we have to investigate and bring people to trial and, and torture them. So you get these witchcraft kind of manias going around. And so centralized governments are the first to realize that this is potentially detrimental to political order to, to, and to the state. And so by the early 17th century, there's a lot of skepticism from the, ver from the highest level judges or, or politicians, and they're trying to curb this. But local, at the local level, people believe in witches. And so there's a local demand for, for witchcraft, witchcraft trials to happen and to happen. Uh, and so you get this thing where there's more centralized states are the ones which repress witchcrafts first. And earliest, often without any widespread uh, mass trials. So Spain, the Spanish Inquisition, pretty early on decide there's no good evidence against witch uh, for, for witchcraft. So after 1612, the Spanish Inquisition don't try a single witch. But in Germany, where it's much more politically fragmented, and you have a lot of local uh, jurisdictions just at the town level, city level, you get ongoing witchcraft trials until the end of the 17th century, in which many kind of, many thousands uh, are persecuted. Many historians dismiss lack of belief in witchcraft as an implausible argument for the decline in witchcraft trials, citing the continued popularity of books on the subject and public statements from elites affirming its existence. 
Yet the lack of adherence to the legal standard which required evidence of both maleficia, that is, evil magic, and diabolism, conspiracy with the devil or his agents, drew criticism at the time for many elites. Moreover, elites who believed in witchcraft were likely more vocal than those who did not, even if the skeptics influenced policy behind the scenes to a considerable extent. Taken together, isn't it quite plausible that growing lack of belief in witchcraft amongst the elites, anyway, was at least a very considerable factor in diminishing the number of witchcraft trials? So I'm, I'm not. I'm going to say it's a contributing factor. So people believe in no. People tend to believe in the in the in, in, in witchcraft at the abstract level. So we quote William Blackstone, who's a famous kind of common law judge of the late 18th century, who says that witchcraft, it's, you know, of course witchcraft can, can exist. So he says to deny the possibility of the actual existence of witchcraft is to contradict the real world, world, word of God. So, um, so at some abstract level, it, it continues, I think there's some belief, but you're, you may be right that the level of plausibility, like the level of, is witchcraft the first order thing that we should expend resources on? That belief does seem to be declining. It's just very difficult to measure its decline. Um, all I will say, what I will say is, I think this belief in like whether witchcraft is a first order issue is kind of endogenous to the legal legal regime. So, in in the early 16th century, uh, sorry, the late 16th century, early 17th century, was kind of the time of Shakespeare, really, uh, when w- w- belief in witchcraft or fear of witchcraft is, is at its height. You're if you're like you know an informed observer on the ground and following this, you'd be hearing of reports from of witchcraft trials in Germany continuously, right? So every year there'll be a witchcraft scare in some German city, resulting in dozens or maybe hundreds of, of trials and executions. And so even if you're a skeptic, even if you're someone like William Shakespeare or someone who's, who's, who's educated and literate and kind of... Uh, not not a credulous person. You might discount some witchcraft trials. You might know some trials where the evidence against the accused was very, very weak. But there's so many, there's so much, right? You'd have to say, well, some of this must be true, right? You know, there's no smoke without fire. Uh, some of it could could be really happening. And so you're not going to totally put a weight of zero. If you're, you know, you go, you go say there's some probability that some witchcraft accusations are true. Therefore, we need some legal apparatus to persecute those genuine witchcraft trials, even if many of them are spurious. Um, but by the end of the century, by the end of the 18th century, and you know that most countries in Europe are no longer actively prosecuting witches. I mean, you hear about some person who was lynched as a witch in some village far away, you're going, to be, you're going to be more confident saying that person was probably just some crazy old woman or crazy old man who happened to be you know, accused of witches, witchcraft trial on Avenio, was unlucky enough to, to run into some very incredulous or superstitious judge and get themselves executed. So I think the decline in the belief that witchcraft is a first order problem is, is, is so tightly correlated or endogenous to the decline in the, the change of a legal regime, but it's difficult to rule out either one totally. But I think the one we can talk about more firmly with better evidence for it is the change of a legal regime. Why did many Enlightenment thinkers, despite stated commitment to freedom of thought and expression, continue to support an established church in the 18th century? Uh, yeah, so that, that's the case in England, of course, where the British, particularly in the 18th century, pride themselves as kind of you know a nation of liberty, a nation of freedom, and they pride themselves on their religious toleration. And compared to the compared to say Spain, which they demonise as a country of Spanish Inquisition and of religious repression, so British in the 18th century see themselves as a country of religious freedom, but of course they maintain on the books laws which kind of repress the Catholic Church. Uh, and some of these laws are quite severe on the books, at least. So, for example, until the end of the 18th century, Catholics can't legally inherit property. Uh, Catholic marriages are not viewed as, as legitimate marriages. Um, Catholic schools are prohibited. So they have a bunch of repressive laws. And so they managed to maintain this belief of their bastion of religious freedom uh, whilst whilst continuing to repress minorities. Uh, part of it's that they have a belief in toleration of, of right religion, toleration amongst Protestants. Um, part of it's a fear of, of um, encouraging kind of 
their political rivals or political enemies. So the main reason why Catholics, uh, Catholic repression is justified in the 18th century is the, is the fact that they think the Catholics might support a hostile takeover by the Jacobins. So just to give you a recap of British history, after 1688, there's a glorious revolution. William and Mary become um, monarchs, and they're, they rule, they're, more, they're more constitutional monarchs than had been the case previously under the Stuarts. But there's a continuous fear that the Stuarts will come back. The Stuart line, uh, the Stuarts continue to have children. So the Stuart line, supporters of the Stuart line are called Jacobins. And you could plausibly make the case they have a more legitimate right to rule than any of the Hanoverian monarchs who succeed um, William and Mary and Anne in the 18th century. So, the, so by, by bloodline, the monarchs should be Catholic Stuarts, but the Hanoverians are in place. And so one justification for continued religious repression of Catholics is that the Catholics are likely to support this um, restoration of the Jacobins and in order to maintain political stability, prevent foreign invasion, we have to keep their numbers under control. We have to make sure that the Protestants have a whip hand. That's one reason why they justified continued religious repression. And you can find similar arguments, I think, in other European countries. Like the, the Habsburgs make similar arguments for why they need to repress Protestants. Because, you know, because the Protestants could destabilize different parts of the Holy Roman Empire, perhaps. Or uh, upset the, the equilibrium established after the end of the Thirty Years' War. Why was there a renewal of religious persecution in the 20th century with the rise of totalitarian states? Yeah, so I think this is related to the crisis of liberalism, which takes place in the mid-20th century. So, um, liberal regimes, and I, I use this word broadly, uh, liberal regimes emerge over time gradually, like following the Reformation in the 18th century. But by the 19th century, late 19th century, you can say, you know, with some exceptions, obviously, um, uh, Europe, Western European and kind of Western offshoots are liberal regimes. That is to say, they, you know, place considerable emphasis on protecting the rights of individuals. And their religious rights are kind of always seen as particularly important here because they, they, that was often the first thing people thought about when it came when it came to you know establishing liberal rights right to believe right of conscience that was the most important liberal right one fought over um then you have a crisis of liberalism following world war one and a rise of totalitarian regimes which don't recognize any of these liberal tenets so they're going to different types of totalitarian regimes are going to do different kind of deal, have different relationships with, with with religion, but all of them are going to implement kind of religious persecution of some kind. As though obviously in some cases the persecutions they implement are also ethnic based or racially based, like the Nazis, as opposed to strictly speaking religious. But they they're all going to reject this kind of liberal this lib liberal configuration that we've described. Um, so the Soviet Union is an obvious case. The Soviet Union rejects liberalism and it wants to remake society on Marxist-Leninist lines, remake man in some sense on Marxist-Leninist lines. And so Russia is a traditionally religious society. The Orthodox Church was key to the Tsarist regime. Um, the traditional peasantry are, are fairly religious, even though the kind of bourgeois intelligentsia were increasingly kind of secular, the, the, the traditional Popula peasant population are going to be religious. And so clearly the Soviet regime needs to repress the Orthodox Church, and it does so. It can't repress it too fiercely at various points in time because it risks provoking a backlash. So in World War II, Stalin allows kind of the churches to reopen because he wants to um, encourage patriotic sentiment in order to you know, get support behind the Russians fighting with Germans. But in general, the Soviet Union has, has, has no room for religious freedom, and certainly for organized religion. Um, some socialist or, so, or kind of communist regimes might claim to allow uh, some kind of private belief, but they go to repress organized religion as a, uh, as, a, as a rival to the state. The situation's a little bit different with the fascist and Nazi regimes. They seek to do a deal with existing religious organizations, 
both of them want a deal because they they want to get on with governing society. They see the kind of Christianity as a outmoded religion uh, as a threat potentially, but they don't have uh, uh, the power or the inclination to take on you know the church head on. So they kind of sideline it and, and, and kind of repress it to some degree while also trying to do a deal with with various church authorities. Um, because uh, why they allow the church some role in, in say, Nazi Germany, but in return, recover ch uh, various churches don't speak out against the regime. That was a deal they were looking for. Uh, but over time, undoubtedly, all the totalitarian regimes are going to get rid of any form of religious freedom, because their ultimate goal was to kind of remake man in their own image, and the state would be the only source of, of legitimacy. And then we'll move on to your journal article, The Political Economy of Expulsion, the Regulation of Jewish Money Lending in Medieval England. How did Jews achieve their unique position as money lenders in Europe? So this is uh, going back to your uh, original question, actually. On conditional toleration. So um, one of the roles Jews have is... Well, let me start uh, start a little step back a little bit. So there's work by Zvix Sina Maricela Bodicini showing that Judaism kind of changes as a religion in the early Middle Ages. It becomes the religion of, of literate people, urban literate people. Um, and so as the commercial economy in Europe expands in the kind of thirteenth and fourteenth century, or well, eleventh and twelfth centuries, so let's say, um, there's a demand demand for credit and money lending goes up. Like the, the economy becomes monetized, long distance trade takes off. You can't get by with just like you know informal lending systems. You need commercial lending. You need money lending. Um, however, who can provide this? Well, the Jews have an advantage because they are they're really specialized in trade and long distance trade particularly, and they have high levels of human capital. At the same time. The Christian, the Christian religion and Christian church has taken on board this actually originally Jewish prohibition on money lending, a prohibition on interest. Uh, at the time, for various reasons, this is interpreted as a prohibition on all interest. All interest is usury. This kind of goes back to Aristotle. It's it's in uh, kind of uh, all the scholastic writings. All interest is condemned as money lending, uh, uh, basically, sorry, all as usury, as theft. So usury means money lending, and it's seen as theft. It's a crime. You could be prosecuted for it. Uh, of course, all the time, people evade this law and they disobey it. But the Jews are seen as exempt from this law because a biblical prohibition says you can't lend an interest to your brother, but you can lend an interest to strangers or foreigners. And so the Jews are seen as foreigners. They have a different religion. So they're allowed to lend money at interest. Uh, this, this, this Jewish kind of uh, money lending um, system which is emerging is a is a lucrative source of rents for political leaders because political leaders can basically take control of it they can license it they can say these jews in my city they can lend money at a certain rate of interest and i'll tax it and in return i'll enforce the contract con these uh money lending contracts so would you say that christians uh who wanted to be money lenders would have been viewed in contempt by society, uh, english society at the time there were money lenders, but they, they would be seen as a seedy occupation. I mean, maybe think about a pimp or today or a drug dealer, someone doing something which was clearly improper and like not strictly speaking legal. Um, and and this, 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 as the demand for money lending goes up, this kind of demonization for money lenders seems to increase. Now, the, the key thing about the, let I me mean, get to the English case. So, so Jewish money lending is a lucrative uh, source of taxation for rulers across Europe. But the English are fairly um, early, or, 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 but one of the first to try and centralize it, to make it a cartel. So um, in the late 12th century, it's basically been, we create an institution called the Exchequer of a Jury, whereby every um, town which is allowed a, 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 a Jewish community, um, they're, they're given um, a set of chests where the Jewish moneylenders are, are going to keep the receipts for every loan they lend out. And so it's a, it's a, much, it's a very uh, formalized system of lending. So these loans can be enforced. And the king commits to enforcing these loans in return 
for basically taking a tax off each individual loan and also being able to charge the Jewish community a tax loan as a talent whenever he needs to, like a discretionary levy or tax in order to raise money in case there's a war or in case he has extraordinary expenses. And so this extractive jury systemizes um, uh, this taxation of Jewish money lending, uh, creates a monopoly, generates a lot of profit, but it locks the Jews into this very um, predatory relationship with the English monarchy, whereby the, the king kind of knows how rich they are because he knows how many loans are being, lent, are being made. So he knows how much business they're doing. And so he knows he can extract a lot of money from them if he needs to. The problem is, is the English kings, they can't commit not to overtaxing this resource. And so what you see is, uh, particularly during periods of crisis, you get kings like King John or Henry III uh, extracting tremendous amounts of money from the Jews and essentially exhausting their ability to generate more revenues. Because if a king demands an extraordinary amount of money, the Jewish community, community can only repay this by calling in existing loans. And that might lead to the, uh, some of their borrowers going bankrupt or some of their borrowers having to sell their land um, at discount. Um, and so the king kind of over over exploits this, this fiscal resource and that generates a crisis for the jews in medieval england and that crisis basically uh, bankrupts them and once they're bankrupt the king doesn't need doesn't find any value in having them around anymore and he decides to expel them and that's the basically the story of the jews in in, in the middle ages in england from the 12th century to the end of the 13th century which is a point at which Edward the first expels them it seems quite clear that in the long run, expelling the Jewish population had sizable negative economic consequences, especially given, for example, the story you've been telling us here, that they provide a pretty fundamental way of monarchs to gain money. So were European monarchs so blinded by short-sighted greed that they ignored these long-run effects? They're short-sighted almost by necessity. They don't have access to capital markets very easily. They can't smooth expenditures. When the king needs money, he needs it now, and his whole regime may depend on it. So you can understand why they act in such a short-sighted way. Uh, they also default on loans to other lenders on several occasions. So the English monarchs, they start lending, borrowing rather, from Italian banks in the 14th century, and they frequently default on these loans. Um, so yeah, they act in a way which looks very short-sighted to us, but I hesitate to say they're being stupid. I, I think it might be a response to the incentives they're facing. Bigotry would be the other common example in the case of uh, Edward I. You, however, you write that bigotry could not account for the timing, so that bigotry and greed cannot explain why he would have chosen to expel the Jewish population. What other factors do you think that were going into European monarchs' decision to exile or banish the, the Jewish population? Economic crises and political crises seems to play a role. So in other work, we've shown the Black Death is associated with a lot of pogroms and expulsions. So the Black Death shock uh, led to a lot of uh, Jews being blamed. Either they're being persecuted because the ruler thinks that will ameliorate popular discontent, their scapegoats, or because in some cases maybe they think they're actually transmitting the disease. Um, that's one factor of factors. The, um, the the monetary exhaustion, the story which explains Edward, Edward's decision, I think, is pure, is a fiscal story entirely. I think the decision to expel Jews in early 14th century France is also fiscal. But in general, economic and political shocks um, led to Jews being scapegoated. And then uh, the ruler, the ruler may not believe that the Jews are responsible for the economic downturn or responsible for, like, you know, uh, the bad event happening. But he could burnish his legitimacy as a as a Christian ruler, perhaps by by sending the Jews out, expelling them, persecuting them, and that's going to give him more authority to to kind of deal with his own population. Why did it take until the late 13th and 14th centuries before Jews were expelled in large numbers from Western Europe? Why does it change in that period? Um, so. I mean, in, in, this other, in another paper Noel Johnson and I have with Warren Anderson, which is published in the UJ, we look at uh, climatic shocks in Jewish pogroms. And so I'm going to say two things, basically. One is that 
what so why and we thought we look at the whole period we look at like from 1100 all the way to 1800 in that paper and we find the number of pogroms and particularly expulsions really increasing after say 1300 and so one explanation for this i think is that there the economy is doing much worse. So the European economy is expanding in the 11th and 12th century. Uh, it's a period of warm weather. Um, it's a period of, of, of fairly stable weather. And wages are going up. GDP per capita is going up. And there are, are shocks to the economy, but they're not really resulting in, in kind of too many pogroms or persecutions. The, the European economy goes on a gets much colder beginning that we know uh, climatologists now think is beginning in the late 13th century but decisively getting colder in the late 14th century similarly the disease environment is getting worse so the, so the black death is the first outbreak of bubonic plague in europe for centuries uh the great famine which is early in the 14th century is also like the worst kind of catastrophe to affect europe in the middle ages so there's something going on in the european economy after 1300, this is a Malthusian economy. Population peaks around 1300. So the fact population is peaking suggests that economic conditions are getting worse after 1300. And so it might be in this environment of, of a declining um, clim climatic and economic environment that the shocks, political economic shocks, um, are resulting in kind of persecutions and pogroms. Another factor could be religious and ideological, so some change in the kind of ideological environment that could also be a factor. Um, Anti-Semitism. A lot of these anti-Semitic uh, anti-Semitic tropes are only fully developed by the 12th and 13th century, and it's only by the 14th century they're really widespread. So maybe anti-Semitism is, is 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 increasing. That could be another another factor. But but our research points to the role of these shocks as being quite decisive. Um, the final thing I would note is there's some evidence that when Jews are the only moneylenders in town, then there's a stronger incentive for the ruler to keep them around and to protect them. But when when there's substitutes available, when Italian merchants, um, bankers uh, emerging who are able to substitute the Jews, that's one reason why you might get uh, rulers finding easier to dispose of their Jewish community. That, that fact might be more more salient after 1300 than it was beforehand. Well, now sift gears one last time to your research on the Industrial Revolution. Could you explain the difference between the Industrial Revolution and Industrious Revolution outlined in your article, The Transformation of Labor Supply in the Pre-Industrial World? This distinction goes back to kind of our earlier scholars. Um, Actually, the term industrious revolution was originally coined by a Japanese economic historian called Akira Hayami, and he was using it to describe what was happening in Japan um, before the Meiji Restoration, so in the early modern period. And he was like, he was saying that in some sense, rather, rather than having an industrial revolution, what happened in, in, in early modern Japan is it commercialized, was that labor input supplied to the markets of wage work uh, were going, was going up. So more women were working, men were working longer hours, kind of children were working. And that's one way you can increase measured GDP per capita, even if you're still a traditional kind of agrarian economy and you're not actually changing uh, the way you're producing goods, you're not mechanizing, you're not industrializing. Then it was applied by end of Reese to describe Europe in the centuries before the industrial, industrial Revolution. So the Industrial Revolution traditionally is dated to the late 18th century or early 19th century, and it's you kind of associate it with the steam engine, with factories, and so on. But what was going on beforehand, it's not like the Industrial Revolution came out of nowhere. It had to, it was an organic uh, development out of trends already in place in the European economy. And so when Yander Vries looked at the European economy before the Industrial Revolution so in the 17th and 18th century, he thought he could detect both greater commercialization, so more reliance on markets, more monetarization, but also um, more, more wage work and mm -hmm. arguably people working longer hours. Um, that was then kind of verified by other researchers, kind of looking at, like, including Joachim Voff, looking at various forms of, kind of like various quantitative measures, which seem to suggest that labor inputs, at least in some places at some times, were increasing. Um, now, my work on this was just to focus on one specific aspect of the question, which is uh, labor supply. Well, one of the kind of key stylized facts of the Industrial Revolution 
is that the labor supply was fairly elastic. Uh, both industrial revolution, the classic one in Britain, but also when you think about subsequent industrial, uh, you know, equivalent episodes of rapid economic growth, say, for example, China in the late 20th century or America in the 19th century. So the labor supply was elastic. What that means is that a factory employer, if he, rate, you know, if he was paying slightly higher wages in the countryside, he could get loads of workers coming to work in his textile factory. So, you know, like it was fairly easy to get uh, uh, a lot of workers um, into your industrial cities. Um, so labor supply curves were elastic. But what, what's interesting is if you read authors from the pre-industrial period, they tend to think that workers, or peasants specifically, had backward bending labor supply curves. Back, labor supply curves which weren't just backward bending, but they bent backwards at very low supply, very low levels of wages. So workers would be, you know, they want to work enough to make, to get enough food to feed their families. But beyond that, they weren't too interested in, uh, in, in, in earning additional income. And so they, they prefer to consume, consume their wages in the form of leisure, basically. Um, so what changed basically between the um, that period where labor supply curves are backward bending and the industrial revolution period where they're elastic? Well, the, the argument is the industrial revolution can be viewed as making labor supply curves more more elastic, more more responsive to the wage. And why does that happen? Well, it's to do with commercialization. Um, it has to be the case that the goods you can buy with your wage are sufficiently attractive you're willing to work longer and higher wages and forego your, your leisure. And that's what I think was happening in England before the Industrial Revolution. That's what the Industrial Revolution was really about. You mentioned that the Industrial Revolution was largely limited to cities, meaning that working hours did not rise mostly for agricultural workers, although one would think that they would also have pretty good access to higher quality goods. So why do you think this is? The specific evidence that... Um, uh, Gokin Voff collected um, was based on trials from the old Bailey and, and other, I think some other courts as well. And to these trials, um, they, they, they interview a lot of witnesses. And the witnesses basically have to account for their entire day. And so the witness would say, you know, I woke up at 6 a.m., I went to work at 7 a.m., and I stayed till 7 p.m., right, 12-hour day. Uh, and so that's how he got his measure of working hours going up which is quite ingenious, but that data is available for the cities, right? It's not so widely available for the countryside. When it comes to the countryside, I just don't think we have the final evidence. Greg Clark, who's a skeptic of the Industrious Revolution, wrote a paper in the late 1990s where he argued that there's no evidence for increasing working hours in countries in, 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 in rural agricultural work. So that's, that, that's, that's why we think it's... Uh, it might be more an urban than a rural phenomenon, but I don't think the final evidence is out there yet to nail that that point. Uh, but think about it: if you if you live in the countryside before um, the automobile or before uh, uh, Amazon delivers stuff, <laughs> then your ability to you know like there are all these new goods. You can go to a coffee shop in the city. You can get drink tea. You can buy tobacco or chocolate, right? But that. To do so, you've got to walk 25 miles. Yeah. Um, so maybe you won't go. So maybe you don't even know about these products. So the peasants are going to probably find out about this stuff later uh, and at a slower rate than people in the cities. It's going to be first the urban workers discover these new consumer, consumer opportunities. You note that while real wages in urban areas rose in northern Europe during the 19th century, they seem to have fallen in southern European countries such as Italy and Spain. Do we observe the same pattern in cities which industrialized in southern Europe, such as Barcelona and Catalonia, or Milan and Lombardy? Oh, that's a good question. I think so. The, the declining wages are particularly declining in the 18th century. By the 19th and, and the first half of the 19th century, let's say, eventually there's going to be industrialization in, like, you know, as you say, Barcelona and Lombardy. Um, I, I don't have a real, Alan's real wage series in front of me right now. Uh, but if I did, I'm sure I would see it is upticking uh, by the late 19th century. It's just it bottoms out, say, in the early or mid. Um, but Barcelona, I think the industrialization of these cities is really a late 19th century phenomenon. My my view about the, how industrialization, industrialization, the industrial revolution spreads is that it's firstly, you know, it's, it's, it is a British phenomenon initially, uh, partly because of the Napoleonic War 
really puts back the rest of continental Europe. Then but after the end of the Napoleonic War, it's spreading to Belgium. And then some parts of France, maybe, but gradually. And then in Germany, rapid economic growth really is only beginning in the 1840s. It's mostly kind of commercialized and, and uh, uh, more Smithian. And then by the 1850s, 1860s, industrialization is taking off in like Bremen or Hamburg. Um, Lombardy, I think, really it's late, late 19th century, so after the unification of Italy. And my understanding of Barcelona would also similarly be like 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, this industrialization. But you would see real wages rise then, I'm sure. Last question. What will your next research be on, Professor Koyama? I have several projects uh, ongoing, so many, many projects. Not all of them will necessarily lead to a book. So I've been working on comparisons of kind of uh, 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 state formation across the world. So um, what determines the size of states? Um, why is China unified? Why is Europe fragmented? And can we generalize those patterns to the rest of Europe? And also doing work on sumptuary laws. Um, what determines regulations which govern what dress people can wear given their social status? Uh, and uh, projects on things like uh, why some states build navies and others don't. So the rise and fall of sea power across the world. That's just a few of the kind of uh, topics I'm, I'm working on right now, though whether or not they'll lead to another book is another question. Many thanks for your time, Professor Koyama. If you enjoyed this episode of the History Twins podcast, there will be another next month, also available on iTunes and SoundCloud. Until next time, I'm Tristan Kaplan. And I'm Aiden Kaplan. And, and together, together we are the History, History Twins. Twins.